Hello, and thank you once again for joining me on The Runtime. I'm your host, Raphael Kennedy, and this is the podcast where we go deep into software design. Today, I'll be talking with James Long about an application called Actual Budget. James works for Stripe on the design systems team and enjoys doing UI work for products. Actual Budget is a privacy-focused personal finance application with some unique technical characteristics. It's built using conflict-free replicated data types, CRDTs, offline-first data, and a syncing strategy that's used by a lot of peer-to-peer applications. So it's a product that uses lots of things that we've been talking about on this podcast the last few weeks. Uh, Welcome, James, and thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for for having me. I'm always (laughs) excited to talk about this kind of stuff. Great. Um, So I was hoping that first you could give us a short version of how you settled on this syncing pattern and what some of the advantages and disadvantages were of this approach. So it all started with, I started building a local app. I was like, I'm just going to build a local desktop app. I don't need all the other stuff. It's just going to be super simple. Um, Of course, when you do that kind of thing, you very quickly run into just uh, expectations that your data should be available on your your mobile device. And uh, for personal finance stuff, it's uh, it is kind of important because, you know, you, you go to the grocery store and you want to see how much money you have left. And so I just very, very quickly started thinking that I do probably need to solve that somehow. And so it, it also kind of piqued my interest about how, how I would solve that without moving to a full cloud cloud solution. Um, another motivation was that I was just really in a way lazy where I didn't want to maintain a server. And this is also a side project at the time. Um, and so I really did not want to be, you know, maintaining a server that could go down on the weekends and I'd have to get up and actually fix it. It was very appealing to, to have just everything local and the server syncing was just sort of this, this background process that could die if it wanted to for a couple of days. But all that to, to be said, I started looking into it and there honestly was not a whole lot of solutions. It's not, there's like CRDTs itself is a very broad topic, but how you sync things around there's really only a few strategies. There's there's CRDTs, there's operational transforms, um, and there might be one or two other things there. And so um, the solutions are, uh, or or you could try to leverage, like let's reuse an existing tool like Git or things like that. Um, all of those things, and I, honestly, a lot of the research in the CRDT world as well, it's not applicable to what I'm doing because I am not dealing with uh, text data. I'm dealing with uh, highly structured application data. And so the the solutions for me are are even more constrained and smaller because there's a lot of cool ways you can sync text around. Maybe you could try to leverage Git, like I said, and have that that sort of model. But there's really not much there. All that to be said, I had some friends that were um, big into CRDTs, and that's really the main reason. They were just like, you should use CRDTs, and I trusted their instinct, and I looked into it, and it seemed appealing to me. And so I just kind of went from there. And uh, I didn't know much at the time, so it was a little bit risky, but I started working on it, and yeah. Things have gone from there. Excellent. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? You know, what so what is the kinds of data that you're syncing between personal desktop and a phone or other devices? So, it's a personal finance app. So, uh, it's very yeah, it's it's very highly structured. In fact, it uses SQLite. So that that was a hard requirement from the beginning too. It's just SQLite is just such a great small database for this kind of data. It's just like seven megabytes of data. If you if you ha- if you have a lot of it, like I have five years worth of my data, and my my file is like seven megabytes mm-hmm. uh, large, which is like tiny for something like SQLite style database. Um, and it's just such a it's just such an easy, fun thing. You can just open up the client locally, SQLite three, open up your database, run some queries, run some aggregate queries. So you sum up all of your balances over a specific time with these tags mm-hmm. or something. 
uh, it just works so well for that. And so I always wanted to, to use SQL, at least in some way, and SQLite was really the best way to do that. Um, and that was, so from the beginning, that was a hard requirement. And so it's all just like typical SQLite style normalized relational data, where it's just like your transactions table, your um, payees table, your budget data, all that is just like very normal database tables. And now on top of that, my syncing layer has like the syncing data on top of that. And so the the type of data synced around is just like you set an amount in your transaction to $5. So that represents 500 because we use integers for like cents and things like that. So to avoid floating point problems. And so that generates a CRDT, what I call a message. Um, and that message is, says you change that, uh, you change this column in this row, in this table to this specific value. So if you think of the table as sort of a spreadsheet, you're like editing that little cell in that spreadsheet and that's what gets synced around. And then all the other clients say, okay, that that cell there was edited. So I'm, I'm gonna actually manually edit it there myself as well. And so when it applies it, it goes through and it just like makes all those changes in those cells. Um, and so it's all the way down to um, the cell level. Like there's no, there's no row conflicts if you edit two different cells on the same row and things like that. Um, so it's, it's these messages that just say, uh, table row column value, and that's about it. Cool. And then they're, I guess, timestamped and sequenced. Yep. So yeah, there's a clock that, so it's not just mm -hmm. as values. There is one additional value, which is the timestamp, which is pretty critical for, for CRDTs. Yeah. All right. And so you, you talked about how SQLite is the core where you're storing the data is, is in SQLite. And I think people are fairly... Um, comfortable with the idea of having SQLite um, in mobile applications, which is pretty standard pattern. Um, I think another big domain that you use is uh, the browser. Can you talk about how like local file storage to handle that SQLite database file, or how how is that being used? Yeah, so the uh, that was another sort of adventure um, where in the very beginning, you know, this was probably four or five years ago when I started hacking on this. Um, and I was like, I'm only going to make a desktop app. And then I eventually was like, ah, I should make a mobile app too. And that, that brought in syncing. Um, the web was never in my mind at that point. Honestly, I was a little burned out on the web. I was just like, so tired of just the limitations of it. It's really nice to have this native app because even though it's electron and it does use, it's mostly a web app and the mobile app is a react native app. Um, then I could just like hook in, I could still expose this native SQLite module. Mm -hmm. Right. And just be like, ah, oh, yes, I can finally just like reach in and get something native. And it's, it just it worked flawlessly from day one. Like I, I never had to manage where it persisted to the file system. It just, I, I could just use literally um, SQLite, which had direct access to the, the file system and could use locking and, and transactional semantics and all that beautiful stuff. Just never had to think about it. After a couple of years, so I spent, there was about a year while I was doing consulting and contracting. I was, and there was a year when I really focused on, on this product um, essentially full-time. And uh, I learned a lot of just about how to, how, to do, how to manage a product and like what's important about how to um, get a product out there. And distribution really is so important. A lot of people say that for me, it's just one of those things that I learned as I built a product and just try to get it in people's hands. It's really, really hard to get people to download 70 megabytes of this big app, which is unfortunately uses Electron because that's just kind of where the state of everything is right now. And like download that large app, get it open, get it running, and then like log in from the app because you're not in the browser anymore. And so they have to re-log in into the app. Um, there's just so many steps and so many places for them to lose interest from, um, from the user in that funnel. And um, I read a blog post from uh, Patrick McKenzie, who Petty11, which I'm sure um, a lot of us know, who actually works at Stripe now as well. 
um, about like how he was always like, I'm going to use um, local desktop apps as well. Um, but there, he, there's a point at which he like ported it to the web and just the, this, the, the conversion rate just like soared. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of that buried an idea deep into me, which is just like, I really, I, I really need to figure out if there's even a way I could get this on the web because it's also, so I, now that I work for Stripe, um, I have my Stripe laptop. One thing that has really made this clear to me as well is that I can't install anything on my Stripe laptop, which is very, if you look in a, um, if you work in a corporate environment, you're, you're probably pretty used to this. Our laptops, you actually, it's not like a permissions list and you're violating it. If you run something, we literally cannot run anything except we use this program, which literally bans everything except on this like allow list. Um, so I cannot literally run actual, I can't like choose to do it and violate it. I can't even choose to do it. Um, but I can go to an, to a web app and run it and run other web apps totally perfectly fine. There's, they're, they're not banning web apps because they are constrained and restricted within the browser. And so as I'm, as I was kind of like going back into the corporate world and getting used to that environment again, it really did like drive, drive down the importance of like distribution and just like, there's all these environments where you just cannot run a local app as much better as it is. And so I was like, man, I really, like, there were times when I was on my work laptop and I didn't have my personal laptop and I wanted to do something with my finances and I didn't have my phone for some reason either. And I literally couldn't do it. Um, and that, and so that, and mainly just like the conversion rates and getting people to use the trial really fast. Um, and so I sat down and I couldn't give up SQLite. There's just no way there's my, my whole app at that point was already built around it. It would require basically rebuilding the app from scratch. So just a long story to, to give some context about why I was willing to put in a lot of work in this. And I've also just been frustrated with like, the web is such a powerful distribution mechanism and it's such a powerful way to build apps, but it's so limiting in like some critical areas. And one of those critical areas is persistence where you just, you have no way to simply just write to a file and then that file is just around for the rest of the lifetime of the app. And I think that's pretty ridiculous for how old the web is. Um, and I get the security concerns. There's a lot of like security concerns there. Um, and so, uh, the only, so the only like hope right now that's actually supported in all browsers is index CB. And so this is the persistent database that, that is like a more of a, more of a key value store. Um, so you can set things in index CB and they persist across, you know, for as long as your app lives theoretically that even even that's not really true as a lot of us probably know. Um, the browser supposedly at some point they decided, well, if the browser can actually evict that data, if other things are taking up too much space, um, and they've, uh, yeah, I, I don't. There's a whole there's a whole thing about that about like browsers can evidently just delete IndexedDB tables because they want to be able to free up space and like it's it's essentially not still not persistent data. But if you're if you're an app where um, in actual what I chose was the cloud, which everything syncs through is a very strong backup. And if, you're, if your data is deleted, it's very unfortunate. There's a chance you will lose some data, but there's, um, it's, you can just re-download the file and it's, you can sort of use it like a cloud app. Um, and for now, I'm, I'm okay with IndexedDB. There is hope on the horizon. There's, there's, there's some newer APIs that are actually real persistent APIs, um, but I'm getting, ahead of, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So I sat down and was looking at these things and was looking at IndexedDB and I was like, well, maybe, like, maybe I can write a layer that translates my SQL statements into something that executes across, but basically I'll be re-implementing um, SQLite. 
And another really important difference here is that I really needed to maintain transactional semantics, right? So SQLite has all these things and all, all over my app is littered with this like begin transaction, do some important stuff and then end, end the, the transaction. It's super critical that those changes in the transaction is either all or nothing, right? If it goes partially committed, then the data would be totally corrupt. Like the the, the database itself would be fine, but the data that actual is reading is not going to make any sense. Um, and so it, I eventually just realized, I saw a couple months ago, there's somebody, they, uh, they wrote this project, which read SQLite files across the web. And you've, you might have seen this, uh, FireSki or something was his, was their GitHub name. Um, and it was a super cool project. Basically, they, they intercepted reads and writes from SQLite, which is compiled to WebAssembly. So there's a, there's a project called SQLJS, which compiles SQLite to WebAssembly. So it allows you to run SQLite on the web. Um, and they, um, what they did was they intercepted file system reads and converted it into a synchronous XML HTTP request so that it blocked. And then they fetched that data with HTTP range requests. So basically, you don't have to read in the entire database. You could just fetch in bytes of the file from a server. And then you could just like run queries across this like one gigabyte SQLite file on a server and it would only load in, you know, like two megabytes or something like that. Um, it was an amazing project and, and it really illuminated to me this idea of this like hooking in underneath SQLite um, to these like file system calls. And it really started like turning this idea of, well, maybe I can get SQLite running, like truly running on the web by actually intercepting reads and writes so that not only can you read it, but you can also write those blocks as well. And to be clear too, I, I did at some point last year, I did get SQL or I did get um, actual running on the web. And the way I did it, I was using SQLJS, uh, but it was the worst. It was just, it was a horrible way of doing it, which is that it loaded the entire database into memory and then it let SQLJS read it from the in-memory version. And then when it wrote to it, I would actually use my, so this was a, this was sort of a pleasant surprise of the CRDTs where I would never write back to that database, but I would write down the messages from the CRDT. So I would basically have that snapshot in, of the database state. And then I would write sort of in my append only log where I, I write down all of those CRDT messages. Um, and then on boot up, it loads that snapshot state and then it applies all those messages through. Um, and it actually sort of worked, but I, unfortunately, as you would expect, ran into just weird problems where like some of those CRDT messages got missing, but the database thought they were still applied. Um, and just like, it, it just led to corrupt data, which was unfortunate, but it, it just mentally, it was very hard to rationalize about. And it was a, a completely different model of persisting and stuff than other platforms. And I really wanted all platforms to be the same so that I could just like know that I could rely on these transactional semantics. Um, so all that to be said, I was, I did get something running. It was just not good. First of all, it was bad that it had to re like read the entire database from memory. Second of all, the, the, the right solution was, was awful. I really wanted to just like read individual blocks and then write individual blocks. It would just be as simple as that. Um, so all that context to be said, I did, I sat down and I, I wrote, I did the same technique where I used, um, so mscripting provides like a virtual file system. And so I wrote my own little virtual file system, which, um, if you read to, if you write, if you read or write to a specific file, which is a SQLite file, um, it'll intercept those read and write calls, and then it'll read those blocks from IndexedDB, um, and then it writes them to IndexedDB as well. So it persists, it it persists the data into into IndexedDB, 
And uh, it, it basically maps all of the files. It basically treats IndexedDB like a file system. And so I, I released this project called Absurd SQL. The thing that was so absurd about it, well, there's a couple of things that are so absurd about it. Uh, the first thing is, is that like a lot of browsers actually use SQLite in to, to implement IndexedDB. And so I'm like storing blocks of data from SQLite into IndexedDB as key value stores of like 4,096 bytes long blocks into IndexedDB, which in turn in the actual disk in the computer gets stored um, from the actual SQLite. Like it's like a four layer <laughs> inception. It's just, it's Going so from, absurd. Yeah, SQL um, database to file system to SQL database to file system to SQL database to file system. Yeah, yeah. there's like two or three file <laughs> systems in there. There's, you know, probably three databases. Yeah. Um, but the really, the even more absurd thing was that that this was the reason why the, so, so I, I, I launched it, wrote a big blog post about like, hey, here's like, you could actually do SQL um, on the web. And it got a lot of attention. And I think it, the, the big reason why it got a, a lot of attention was that it's actually way, way faster than writing an entire app in on top of IndexedDB itself. And so it's one of those rare situations where it's like a win-win. Like not only is it simpler to write apps, but this abstraction, it doesn't cost you performance. It actually gives you like, about an order of magnitude of performance. Wow. It's about 10 times faster because it's effectively batching the reads. Like IndexedDB is slow. It is slow as crap. Um, and it effectively batches all of those reads and writes so that when you you can write, you can write a, um, you can write about 4K of data into SQLite and it'll do one IndexedDB write. You write about 4K of data into SQL or into IndexedDB directly in your app and they're like a bunch of individual small pieces of notes or something. It's probably going to be at least three to 500 writes. I mean, it kind of depends on your, the, the shape of your data, but like, it's going to be really, really slow. E like even with transactions, it's, it's IndexedDB is a pretty terrible database. Um, but, and so like, because it's a terrible database, it was so easy to get that win. And so that was the thing that really, I think blew my mind was like, not only did I just get it working, but I, I felt like I did kind of stumble on something that was actually pretty novel. Very cool. Um, do you mind if we turn one one notch deeper into how how it's doing that batching? Is this this is the internal batching of behavior of SQLite? Yes. So it's um, it batches it because it treats IndexedDB just like a normal file like file mm -hmm. system. And what that means is that when you when you write a file on your computer and you save like a text file, the the minimum most computers will write um, a minimum of about four K, like four thousand ninety six blocks. That's just like it's hard coded into the disk. And I, I don't know, like I'm probably going to say things that aren't completely true here, but that's, that's essentially the operating system will, will only take 4,096 bytes and write that into the disk. You, you can't write just like four bytes into the file system. It just, it just doesn't work that way. So it's like, it's like at the operating system level batching, I guess, to reduce the amount of reads and writes from the disk or something. Um, and so SQLite aligns with that, um, that, like file system block size. And so that, so that it can like very efficiently say, I'm going to fill up my local cache and then I will only write things down in these, in these blocks. And so it's the, um, so when you write a bunch of data, SQLite is going to like write it all down into its internal data structure. And then SQLite is it, it like, it does all of this magic where it, it actually translated all translates it all down into its binary format and so if, if you do like, if you, if you only write a tiny bit into SQLite, it will always write 4,096, like a block of 4,096. It's just going to overwrite that block because 
it can't go any smaller down to the operating system that's that's enforced. But the magic of that is that as you are writing more and more, it's still always only going to be one write as 4,096 bytes, unless you go over that, but then you go over that and then it's just two writes because now it's writing 8,000 and whatever mm-hmm. that is. Um, and so it's it's down at the operating system level that it's enforcing that and SQLite aligns with those boundaries just for performance so that it, it's always writing the, the exact block that the file system is going to write. Um, and so I just write into SQLite whatever I want to. And then at the file system level is in the read and write methods that I intercept, I get data in those 4,096 blocks sizes. And then I write those as individual, like there's a key value pair in my um, IndexedDB table where the key is the offset of the um, the data into the entire file. And so that's always going to be a multiple of 4,096. So the first block is zero. The next one is 4,096. The next one is 8,000 and whatever. Um, that's the key. And then the value is an array buffer of those of that block. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it batches it. Like it, it's only going to get a write of that entire block. Even if I wrote into SQLite a thousand times, it's only going to get that one block, which then I write down into IndexedDB. Okay. And you don't, there's not a, a, you know, a concern about losing data that's only persisted in that, in that cache and hasn't yet been persisted to the file system. So there, I mean, there definitely is, but SQLite, it, uh, it, like it already takes care Mm -hmm. of all that. Like it already has this whole method for writing things down twice and things like that. So it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really have a cache. Like it, like the way that I said it before was not probably the, the most clear way. It doesn't have like a cache where it queues up writes and then writes them, writes them down later. Um, when you open a transaction in SQLite and then you mm-hmm. close it, when you close that transaction, it you can act as if it has written everything out to disk and it's properly written. And then SQLite has this whole strategy for like doing atomic commits where it writes things into two places so that if you lose power, it's either going to be all written or it's not going to be written. If you lose power, it's, it actually writes it down once and then it writes it down into another place. And if you lose power between those two places, it can like knows how to roll back stuff correctly. Mm. Um, so essentially, we just can rely on SQLite for all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so in XDB, the, the important thing about this, was, which was, I think, I, I actually do think is pretty clever, is that in XDB has transactions, right? Because it is a database, so it needs transactions. So it has the ability to say, write all of this chunks of stuff down and it's either going to atomically say yes it's written or no it's not that's the critical thing that we can rely on which we can map um sqlite's transactional semantics down onto indexdb stuff so i that was something i was very careful to do as i'm getting writes you actually can write it down in a way that's just one indexdb transaction and therefore you get the same um uh like reliability Mm. very cool so if we if we zoom back a little bit, you talked about emphasizing the web platform for the distribution value. Other than that, were there any like really significant forks in the road that you encountered in the process of of developing this app? Yeah, there were there were a couple. Um, trying to think early on, so early on it was like a real peer to peer type thing because um, mm-hmm. I was like, if I'm going to do all this, I might as well go all the way, uh, and that was. That was a weird, that was, it was, it was kind of cool to be honest, because you could actually like, you could actually connect two devices and sync the data mm-hmm. between them. 
Um, but the the problem is that our our networking inf- infrastructure just is not really set up for that. There's a lot of problems where somebody was in a coffee shop and because the router was disabling like multicast DNS, um, they couldn't see their other laptop. And I just, I really wanted to focus on the product at mm-hmm. that point. Um, so I dropped that and now it is like we have one server. And in the future, there's potential where I could actually allow you to host your own server and things like that. Like it doesn't really need to be centralized. Um, but so that, that, that was one where I was like, I, I really focused more on just like, I, I'm just going to like have a dedicated server and that's, that's about it. I'm trying to think I've navigated. Uh, I've, it's more just like, there's a lot of small changes. There hasn't really been like a lot of huge pivots, just like a lot of like, I'm going to focus on this mm-hmm. and that instead. So um, there's been the syncing portion, to be honest, has probably been one of my most stable. I think that has really worked out really, really well. Um, I haven't really like had to redo that multiple times. Like there's a lot of other pieces of the app, which to be honest, are in a lot worse shape. And I'm doing a lot of effort to, to try to fix those up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have been pleasantly surprised at how, how well the CRDTs has worked out. You've got an application that is designed as much as it possibly can be to really be, you know, an offline local application. And you've sort of used some of the tools that are trying to power these like um, multi-user collaborative online distributed systems to really enable something that for for a user feels more like the applications of, of yesteryear where you've got your own local stack and data is sort of under your control and in front of you as an individual user. Did you find that, um, you know, that there was sort of a messaging problem with trying to like communicate to users about, you know, sort of the difference between what you were doing and like, a big um, cloud-based SaaS app? Yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's a totally appropriate question. It's It's very interesting to me. It's one, honestly, that I don't get asked a lot, um, just about the sort of like the meta around, like this app is so different. And what does that mean for the user? Sh- should they know it's different? Or like how important is that? Because um, I, I personally am of the mindset where like users... You can't really, I don't, most apps, you can't really sell them just some pure tech, technical merits. Like they, it needs to just solve a real problem for mm-hmm. the user as well. Um, and it's definitely been a struggle to sort of figure out how to, how to message that. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely been a struggle. Like how, um, even just like on the landing page right now, it's like, it's almost like I want to include it in the tagline because it's just such a different type mm-hmm. of app. I don't think that's the right place to put it, but I do think it's like, the subtext right underneath that, that might still be above the fold. Just like explaining that like this, it is a privacy focused approach. Um, and it just, it allows such different things um, that I want to get that message out early. I don't, I haven't really run into like customers expectations. I guess some of the things that I have run into is the like, can it run, like, can it run on the web? Like, why can't I just log in and, and see my stuff? Um, that was, that was a big one. And one of the reasons why, like, I really did want to get it working on the web to make it a little bit more match that like expectation. Mm -hmm. It's, I think, I think it's, it is easy. If the messaging was not there in the marketing, it's pretty apparent when you start using Mm -hmm. the app that it just works that way. Cause you got to like, you can choose where to store your files. Like it's pretty clear when apps store things locally. Cause it's just, there's all these things like, you know, choose where to store your files. What's the password to encrypt them. And just, there's all these like obvious Mm -hmm tell telltale signs i think the bigger thing um the, i think the hardest thing 
that I run in that uh, you you probably run into when you're developing these kind of apps is the users that expect it to go like all the way. And so if it's like if it is this sort of local first app, like why do you even have a server? Why can't I host my own server? Or like can I can I, why can't I sync it between devices? Like why isn't it open source? There's all these things that are just sort of like I think that's probably the the thing that I just keep running into a lot more is actually people expecting like people expecting an entirely um sort of this i don't know like a, like a fully open source totally local i can run the entire app and modify it type type i i run into that a lot more than people it's hey saying like hey this other cloud app does this why can't i just do that mm-hmm. here because it, it does get most of the way there but there is yeah like how to message it how to um how to explain that it is different is definitely a challenge yeah i, I notice you know you have a little thing saying this app is offline, but you have to log into it on your, on the like login page, which like, I can, I can see trying to, you're sort of straddling these, these two worlds in a way that is, is probably confusing for both sets of people, but yeah, you may have. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's, it, that's a great example right there. And it's hard. Like I definitely could explain it better probably at that screen, but it's almost like if you don't log in, then what happens? Mm-hmm you especially in the especially in the browser i mean if you don't log in what happens you you put in some data and then you you close your data you close your browser and then you might just like never see that data mm-hmm. again and so i i i think there is a lot more actually expectations of users that your data at least is like automatically backed up yeah. somewhere i i honestly think that most people just expect that and so um being able to to log in it's just like you can set up an encryption like t- to me, it, it supports end-to-end mm-hmm. encryption, and to me, that really solves a lot of the problems. Like, if anything, the server and, the, and this syncing all that data to the server um, when it's end-to-end encrypted, it's essentially just a, a backup that nobody else could mm-hmm. ever read. And so, you can always you you accidentally delete Chrome from your computer, which loses all the, all of the Chrome's local data. You can still boot up Chrome later and log in and get your data. So, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of concerns there um i mean i i was just playing just earlier this morning i was playing with logseek which is like like a rome style outliner app um for taking notes and stuff and it's like completely local it's a super cool app i'm i'm very interested in it um and it's it's all completely like markdown files and things like that where it's just like totally local you can open a file in chrome um but for syncing you still need to log Mm -hmm. in and so that is one thing i could do with actual which is just like sure you could do everything local and not log in. I actually, so, you know, now I think about it, I do remember we, I, I did something like that at, at a certain point and it was actually more confusing for mm-hmm. users because the workflow of how you logged in, is just very confusing about like, oh, you can't do that because you're not logged in yet. Like log it's, there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of nuances mm-hmm. here and, and it's probably not the best right now, but it could be improved. But I think ultimately if you are going to be like a real user of the app, I mean, you're just you're you're going to create an account and log in just so that you have a, a backup of your data at least. Yeah, I mean, it seems it, it makes sense to me. It's just and the fact that there's this like fundamental misalignment between that is relatively recent between a user as a person and a user as a device is you know it's a a thing. Lots of people who appeared on this podcast have been trying to find ways to deal with. Okay, well, so that all that sounds good, and it sounds like syncing has generally worked well. Can you talk about any decisions that you made um, that ended up being counterproductive or that led you down a down a blind alley? 
I think the peer to peer one is like I mentioned before, was definitely one of those where I just spent, there was like six month period where I was, I was constantly, um, having to, to answer people's questions about like, Hey, are you on the public Wi-Fi? And then they would say, yes, I am. And they were, and I would have to tell them that multicast DNS is not enabled on there. So you can't sync your device there. Um, that was very, that, that was honestly terrible. And I think I need to look more into things like IPFS. And I, I think the reason why these technologies are so different is because our networking infrastructure is just not set up to support peer-to-peer stuff very well. Mm-hmm. So um, for a while, I was always like, why, like, why does, why is DAT and why is uh, IPFS and like Web3 and all this other stuff, why is it so different and feels so foreign? And I think it's just because a lot of these things are just having to reinvent so much of the stack to, mm-hmm. to actually fix these, those sort of problems. Um, so that's, that's one thing I'm trying to think of other for syncing, to be honest, like I mentioned, uh, I'm I'm very pleasantly surprised at how how stable it's been um, over over time. I don't really think. I mean, there's definitely like problems. Like if you uh, import a really large file and dump a lot of data in there, it's going to generate a lot of sync data. Um, but that hasn't really been counterproductive as much as just like I had to spend a couple of days to optimize the server to support like a. 20 megabyte upload type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I wouldn't say much of the syncing stuff. I think that that I got either kind of lucky or it just kind of worked out that CRDTs are just really pretty, pretty good um, at this kind of stuff. I think a lot of the counterproductive stuff is just like in the UI where I was trying to do too much myself. I didn't really use like a third party design system library, like trying to probably a little overreached on each platform too, too early on where just like I spread my efforts too too much across to have like a mobile app across all platforms and it does stuff app across all platforms and now the web. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of things that are like unrelated to syncing. So I don't know if those are as, as interesting. Yeah, no, there's just... a lot of other things that are like just very counterproductive, just like I, I tend I tend to like to do things like if I'm going to have something done, um, I'll I'll look around and see if there's anything there. But I, a lot of times I'll just do things my, from from scratch, which because I like doing it and I do think I can do a good job. But mm-hmm. you you only have limited time, especially when you're like a solo founder. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably my that was one of my biggest drawbacks. Is I, I think I should have leveraged the plot like the community and third party libraries more. Okay. Um, has there been anything about developing apps in this kind of this space that was particularly surprising to you? Yeah, there's been a lot for sure. Yeah. Just going down the list of things like one of the things that I'll, I'll mention is sort of counterproductive, but not in a way that's like my fault. Um, <laughs> it's more just annoying. Um, it's if you develop a locally offline app or your like architecture is so entirely different, you, you have, a, I mean, honestly, a lot of the times I would have to do things myself because you, is you have a hard time leveraging the the ecosystem because mm. the ecosystem is just it's not built for you. It's not built for all this kind of stuff. I, I tweeted this a while back when I was integrating. Um, I used Mixpanel for for metrics, mm-hmm. and um, I literally can't use their SDK out of the box because it assumes, uh, like it assumes you're not in a background process, which I have to be in a background process because my my entire back backend is a background. They just are like, who's doing a background backend in the background process? Like you would. Your backend is on a node server, of course, and your front end is in the web, is in the browser, and that's about it. But like, it doesn't work in a worker. It doesn't work in other obscure environments, like in a background node process for Electron. It doesn't work in Node.js Mobile, which I use for my uh, web app. So it didn't require that much changes, but it required like 
uh, a bunch of changes to their code to just work, just just even run. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's and I run into this all the time. Whenever I use any sort of like Sentry or all these other things, it's mostly works. And then you run into these weird cases where it just assumes like window exists so that you're in the browser or it assumes that that you're just a traditional SaaS um, setup. So it's really, that's been really, really annoying is that like you do end up just having to do a lot of work because you just can't leverage the the ecosystem as much because they just assume you're not building local apps. Um, so that's a negative. Some other things that are really interesting that are positives though is undo and redo basically came for free because it's so amazing that it's completely local. And so, uh, I mean, undo is still an annoying feature because it's just pretty difficult to get not only technically, but also just the, the user experience of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's completely within my grasp, essentially, because I have, so it's it's all completely local, right? And I have all the changes here locally. So it's just a matter of like tracking which changes to put in that undo tree. And then when you undo them, I just reverse the messages and apply the reversal of the messages. And it worked great. And it's and it, like my app is completely entire. Every single action that you do in the app that that mutates data is undoable, even on mobile. Uh, and that's a huge thing that like almost no apps have. They have like a very primitive basic version of undo, but it's so easy. If you go in and like start undoing in Notion or, or other things, it's so easy to, to get into a weird state um, and where it does something unexpected. That was surprising just how, how well that works as well, reaping the benefits of the syncing infrastructure. Yeah, another thing, like uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this and it has worked out well, it's just like the user experience of the app is just like, there's a lot of stuff I could improve UX wise, but in terms of the base performance of it, you just get performance for free because it's everything is totally local. It's never have. I I think I run like 500 queries on boot up, but you um, the startup if you are starting it from cache, even I guess 500 queries even if it's from the cache, it's like several thousand if it's not from the cache. Uh, but you 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 hardly feel that. I mean, it's you boot up from the cache and it's you know a couple hundred milliseconds boot up time, and so that I mean that's that's been amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things I could talk about that were really really great um, and some some bad things as well. But I think that kind of covers the the gist of the types of things that I would say. That That's an, a really interesting point about just the benefit of booting up from the cache. I think that's something you don't hear talked about a lot in sort of the virtue of, of working with offline data. But it is a, a true point that making a thousand requests to a local copy of your data is a lot easier than efficiently making a thousand requests to a MongoDB cluster somewhere. Right. And it's, it's, uh, it's essentially infinitely scalable. I mean that my entire, so actual as yet to like, I'm still like shuffling things around some, it hasn't really just like exploded yet. And obviously it's now it's a side project for me. So I don't expect it to just like totally explode. I do feel like there's a lot of potential here that it will at some point peak a little bit, a lot higher. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't think it will make any difference on my servers. I, I might have to sync like sync the data a little bit more like I, could, I might get some more like data incoming from the network but that's like that's about it though um whereas you know your app explodes and you're dealing with a lot of complicated back-end server infrastructure suddenly your all's bills are 20 times higher and you have all this other like cpu and database work going on for me it's just literally just like let me take these messages put them into postgres let me like query like my the, the back-end server for that part of the code for just the syncing is just like less than a hundred lines of JavaScript. Um, and that is real, that's the real magic of CRDTs mm-hmm. because they're just so effortless to, to move around. Yeah. Very cool. 
What is next for you and for Actual? I think for me, um, you know, right now I work for Stripe on the design systems team. Um, I'm very happy where I am, to be honest. So I don't see that changing for for a while. I think for me, I would just like to continue hacking on side projects, probably get into, um, you know, some maybe play with some other things like generative art and things like that. I have a couple other things I want to play with. Uh, but in general, for actual, it's a it's sort of like a persistent side project for me right now. Um, I love working on it. I work on it every single week. Um, and what I really want to do, uh, something that's been a long time coming is for actual to implement bank syncing. So right now it doesn't have bank, bank syncing. So I've been, for a long time, I've been looking into the right provider for that. Um, but I'm really eager to get that out. I think that's blocking a lot of the, the, the um, like progress of actual and people actually adopting it. Um, so bank syncing and then, um, yeah, I, I have a lot of visual design refreshes coming up because I think that's one of the weakest points of the app as well because the, the design hasn't really been improved in the last year or so because I've just I've been dealing with so much of the infrastructure um, of of be, just being a local app as well. Um, so a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming. There's also for a big thing with actual, which also is related to this whole local app idea. And one of the reasons why I started this app, so I can't believe I haven't done it yet, but it's just taken so long to get here is um, the ability to, to do your own queries. And so you could actually build custom reports by, you could open up a report and actually write. I actually have this little internal query language called that I call AQL, which is just a stupid little name for it. But it's basically just like, a, it's almost like a javascript Mongo-y kind of like, you can say, hey, query this stuff from the table, where these fields in this object are equal to the values in this object. Um, and But I could even let you drop down to the native SQL queries if you wanted to, like, what the hell, sure. Um, why not? So that's, that is to sort of the end game for me is when I launch those custom reports, that's like the thing that I really want to get to. Um, but I have a little ways to get there just because of various infrastructure problems that I'm still fixing. So cool. All right. Um, and so this is something I ask all of my guests before we log off, but what are some other projects that you love or are fascinated by out on the internet? I think on my mind right now, I mentioned before uh, I was playing with LogSeq. It's 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 a outliner like note taking slash um, to do type app, uh, very much like Rome Research. But I've for a lot of reasons been trying to adopt like move off of Rome Research because they just haven't really been developing stuff the way that I want to. So uh, it looks like a really cool project. So it's LogSeq S E Q dot com. Um, really inspired by it. It's, I don't, for me, I don't think it's quite ready yet. They're actually just looking into using CRDTs for syncing, which is really exciting. Like right, right now it's all local files. And then they try to do this sort of like GitHub syncing where they push commits to GitHub. Uh, I've already run into problems with it though, but I talked to the person on Twitter actually today and he said they're, they're looking into using YJS for their CRDTs for, for syncing. So that I would definitely recommend looking into that project if you're into like, uh, outliner org mode style note taking. Um, so yeah, that's a super good one. Um, I think that's really just what's up been on the top of my mind in terms of projects from the web. Okay, cool. Um, I think that about brings us to the end of the episode. Is there anything else of yours that you'd like to promote? Absurd SQL. That's I think my, my latest one. If you want to come help maintain it, I am, I am sort of looking for help on that project because I don't have a ton of time for it right now. Okay. And how can people find you on the internet? On Twitter, I am Jay Longster, and uh, that's pretty much the name I use everywhere. So GitHub, Jay Longster, yeah. All right. Well, thank you again for your time. Uh, Links to the projects mentioned will be in the show notes. Have a wonderful day. 
Thank you very much. Well, that wraps it up for this week on The Runtime. I remain your host, Raphael Kennedy. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe and, if possible, leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps to spread the word. If you have thoughts, feedback, or ideas of folks that I should interview for the show, please reach out either via email at raphael at runtimepodcast.com or on Twitter at podcastruntime. Thanks again for listening.